0: As we're about to turn to the Bible, just a short prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your precious word, the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that even though it was written many centuries ago, it speaks to us about the same God whom we know and serve. And Lord, today I just ask for your help, that what I say will be exactly what you want me to say, and that each of us will respond in a way that pleases you to what your word says. For your name's sake, amen. Are you feeling adventurous this morning? I heard a lot of no's and hardly any less. Well, whether you feel adventurous or not this morning, you've got to be brave. Because I'd like to introduce you to a book of the Bible you may not know very well. The book of Deuteronomy. How's that? Are you looking forward to it now? Deuteronomy sometimes we shy away from the Old Testament apart from the Psalms of course that we know and love but we shouldn't neglect it after all for Jesus what we call the Old Testament was his Bible that was all he had so when Jesus talks to his followers about how the Bible speaks of him it was referring to the Old Testament so it's good we don't neglect it before we read some verses from it i 'm um, going to give you a bit of background. God had delivered his chosen people from Egypt, He gave them his commandments, including the Ten Commandments that, that we know a bit about, and then they headed for the promised land to go in. but they wouldn 't enter the promised land because they were scared because they didn't believe God that He could get them in. And so because they refused to go in, they were condemned to wander around in the wilderness for nearly 40 years, just going round and round in circles for 40 years until all the fighting men of that generation who had refused to go in had died. And now we've got a new generation. And now after many years, this new generation are on the the verge of the promised land. Are they going to go in? So Moses is speaking to them, And he's giving them a bit of a recap of all that's happened up till now. So that hopefully they will obey God and go into the land and not make the same mistakes as their parents. We're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 7. You might appreciate a page number. Page 186 in the Church Bibles. Page 186, Deuteronomy chapter 7. The whole chapter is worth reading, but for this morning I'm just going to read the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 7 on page 186. This is Moses speaking to this new generation who are about to go into the land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you the many many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. For those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning. Don't know about you, but when I read those verses, the obvious question that springs to my mind is why all this killing? He says in verse 2, you must destroy them totally. Why? Because the Bible tells us time and time again that God is a God of love. He's incredibly merciful and compassionate. And even in, in this chapter, there are several references to God's love. So, why this command? To destroy these nations. First we should bear in mind. This was a unique situation. It isn't every day. That God takes a nation from one country. Transports them to a the wilderness. And brings them into another one. This is a very special situation. And it's a vital part of God's plan. That these, that these people should settle in that land. God's people entering the promised land of Canaan. But also. And very important. That the people who are going to be killed. Weren't just innocent victims they were exceptionally evil a couple of chapters further on in chapter 9 God explains that he's doing all this on account of the wickedness of these nations we know from other sources that their religion included ritual prostitution and child sacrifice and now God was going to punish them for their wickedness We'll say a bit more about, about all this in a minute. But but I guess what really matters for us this morning is, is there anything that we can learn from this passage? What do these events from so long ago have to do with us? Well, actually, quite a bit. Uh, I've got my three points. And, and I, I know how important it is. that Your points must begin with the same letter. So the bit of manipulation, we've got three points. Uh, distraction. Destruction and deliverance. Okay, got that. Distraction, destruction, and deliverance. We're going to start with distraction, and just to encourage you, so you don't lose hope, this is this is by far the longest point. So once you get past this, uh, we're, we're nearing we're nearing the finishing line. Okay, distraction. If God's people simply settled down in the land, without removing these people, if they were still surrounded by the pagan nations it's very likely that those nations would lead them astray. So God says there must be no compromise with the people around them. They were to destroy them. Uh, Actually, you find it a a bit later on, that uh, in some cases, it would be enough to at least drive them out. One way or another, so that people were no longer in the land to be a bad influence to them. They had to be thorough. They had to be ruthless. Uh, I'm struck by what it says about all, all their religious things. That they, they, had to, they had to break down, to smash, to cut down, to burn, to totally destroy everything to do with their pagan worship that might otherwise lead them astray. There are at least two practical applications of this for us. That's why it's so relevant to us today. And here's the first one. The reason that God told them to destroy everything to do with the people, with the pagan worship around them, was that they were God's holy people. Chosen, redeemed. They were supposed to be different from other people because they were God's people. And isn't that true for us also? If we're Christians, we're God's people. Like him, we've been, like them, we've been chosen and redeemed. We're meant to be different, a holy people. But we, we know about our daily struggle with sin don't we if you're a christian you know about your struggle with sin you get tempted and it's it's not easy the devil tries every trick in his book to draw us away from the lord to undermine our relationship with him and our witness to other people and so this passage teaches us that in our struggle with sin there can be no compromise the football season just started, hasn't it? Some of us are happy at the moment. Uh, Alan is amazingly happy. It won't last. But uh, but what it that a good football coach does is after the match in the following days, he gets his team to sit down and watch uh, a video of their performance. So they can look at what they did. They can look at what went wrong. Uh, they can look at the mistakes they made. So they can work out a strategy to avoid making the same mistakes again. Because with Bolton that would take hardly any time at all because it was almost error-free. But uh, that's what a coach does. So you look at where you've failed and you learn from it so you don't make the same mistakes again. In a similar way actually, it it can be very helpful, and you might like to do this, to spend some time with the Lord just Analyzing the kind of situations where you fail, asking him to show to show you way ways you can avoid failing in the same way again. Develop some strategies, especially in the context of this passage, how we can avoid being dragged down or dragged away from the Lord by the people and influences around us. Because all kind of influences aren't there? you going to have to turn the television on and you're getting a, a message, as it were. Of a, of a different uh different attitudes different lifestyle different aspirations altogether and it's good to, to to ask yourself um does anything or anyone in my life tend to lead me away from the lord maybe the places you go the company you keep The things you watch on TV or online, we need to take sin seriously and be ruthless. At the same time, there's a balance because we aren't meant to cut ourselves off from society. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. So we've got to be before men sometimes. People should better see us. Um, um, In John's Gospel, we read how Jesus prayed to his followers that they would be in the world, but not of the world. So we need to ask the Lord to help us to find the right balance so we keep ourselves separate enough we are not influenced, but near enough to people that we are a good influence to them. And if you really want to please the Lord and ask him to help you, I'm sure he will help each of us to find the balance that's right for us in that. <clears throat> that's the first part of um, uh, uh, avoiding distraction. Distraction. Been drawn away from the Lord. But the second part is um, there's a, a more specific application of this same principle in this passage. These people were instructed not to make any, any treaties with the people and certainly not to intermarry with them. Why not? Because it says in verse 4 if, if they intermarry with, with these, these other people, they will turn your sons away from following me to follow other gods. Remember what it's like to be young. You can you all remember that? You've got a very good long-term memory. You might remember when you were when you were young, and you meet someone all the time. You're on the lookout for for Mister M- Wright or Miss Wright. Uh, as Margaret once said, the problem we find Miss Wright is you sort of venture that their middle name is always. Uh, <laughs> but you meet someone, and it. It, it seems so harmless. She's, she's a, a lovely girl. He's a, a really nice young man. But if they're not a believer, their gods are not your god. If you get involved with them and settle down together and, and marry them, you're committing yourself to spending the rest of your life with someone who doesn't give Jesus first place in their lives. And who's going to win? There's an illustration now, and I'm not. I'm only going to talk about this, not do it, because if we try to do it, I might get injured. But imagine for a moment, I would stand at the edge of the platform and invite a strong man like Robert to come and try to pull me down. And he might well do that, not because he's a burly Scotsman, but because he's got he's got a force on his side, the force of gravity, and it would probably be fairly easy for Robert to pull me down. How about if if he comes to the front and I try to pull him up onto the platform? That's harder work because I'm fighting against the force of gravity. It's the same with us and our relationships. If uh, you're a believer, the other person, however nice they are, isn't a believer, who's going to get their way? Most likely, the believer will be pulled down because again, there's a force of work, not gravity, but sin, and we're all sinful. And we're easily pulled down to the person's level. And that's what tends to happen if, if we get too close to people who aren't believers. Of course, they may be saved by, by your witness. And that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? But, you know, it's important to sort, out, to sort out our beliefs at an early stage before we get too involved. Before we, as it were, get past the point of no return. And more often what happens, and sadly, as we've seen in this church more than once over the years, the the young person who believes turns away to follow the other person's way of life, where Jesus isn't Lord at all. And that's a disaster. Young people probably don't realise what's at stake. It isn't just about the next few years but it's where they, about where they spend eternity, whether they'll be saved or totally lost forever. So it's a big deal. Now, I hope you don't mind me saying that I think most of us are past the age of young romance. But we can pray for our young people. I guess all of us have got young people in our lives, whether it's in our extended family or, or friends and neighbours, that we care about. Do pray for them because it matters a lot whether they get involved with people who don't believe or not. And it may be that at least there are some young people who you're close enough to that they might even listen to. I know young people don't always want to listen, do they? But it might be sometimes some, some of them will listen to you. Just warn them. Help them to see the consequences of uh, getting too close to someone who will lead them away from Jesus. And they could be lost forever. And that really matters, isn't it? Because, you know, that's the end of point one. That's the end of the distraction. Those two points, much quicker. For about another ten minutes, I think. Destruction. we already said that God's judgment fell on the people of the land because of their wickedness. But the fact is that God's judgment will eventually fall on everyone who deserves it. Probably not in this life, though sometimes it is. But it may well be delayed until after this life, when the final judgment takes place. Because God delays it, because God is infinitely patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He gives people plenty of time to repent. In one way, we quite like the idea of judgment. We cry out for judgment for people like Mr. Putin, and Hitler, and Stalin, and you could name lots of others but the trouble is when we read the Bible we discover it isn't only what we would call wicked people who deserve God's judgement we all do one day we will all face our judge and none of us will have a leg to stand on because God is perfectly holy and we've all fallen far short of his standards and we deserve to be condemned but there's one hope for us. That brings us to point number three sigh of relief. Deliverance Verses seven to nine tell us that God loved these people he set his affection on them, he delighted in them Why did he choose to save them? He makes it clear in, in verse seven he didn't choose them because they were bigger than other nations, they were, they were the, the, the least numerous nation. In the next chapter, he also tells them he didn't save them because they were more powerful than other people. They were weak. In chapter 9, he says he didn't save them because they were more righteous. Because they weren't. He simply chose them because he loved them. And if they would just trust in him and do what he said, they would be greatly blessed. And he talks about that in the second half of the chapter that we didn't read. And God, in his great love and mercy, offers to treat us in the same way. We're not big or strong or clever or even naturally especially good. God God didn't choose choose us because we were better than other people. He chose us because he loves us. And as I said before, if you ask me to to explain why God loves us, I don't know. Because he knows all about us. He knows all the reasons why he shouldn't love us, and yet he loves us. Uh, not just with a little love, but with a love so great, so fierce, you might almost say, that he chose to send his son to face the judgment that we deserve. We've read this morning about the awfulness of God's judgment. Jesus endured God's judgment in our place. When you look at the cross, as a few minutes from now we'll be taking communion, thinking about the cross, think about Jesus there on that cross. He was enduring this awful judgment that we deserved so that we could be delivered. And he will deliver us if we're simply willing to listen to him, follow him, commit our lives to him. And as I finish now, as I'm preparing this, I felt I just it was important at the end of, it, of this uh, to urge all of us to think seriously about what this passage teaches us because being a christian isn't a game it isn't like a hobby you can dabble in for a while without taking it too seriously and then go off and do something else this is for real this is what life is all about we all have a choice doing nothing is a choice We all have a choice. We can either live like the people around us and allow ourselves to be dragged down to their standards and dragged away from the Lord and think it actually doesn't matter that much whether we serve God or not. Or we can commit ourselves totally to the God who is great and awesome, it said later in this chapter, and obey him. Because this chapter makes it crystal clear that one choice leads to God's richest blessing because his way is best. You might have not felt like following in the past, but his way is the right way and it's the best way for you. Um, One choice leads to God's richest blessing as we live life to the full as he meant us to. But the other choice for us and for our young people leads to total disaster, not just for now, but for eternity. And the choice is ours. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you, Lord, you've given us time to repent. We thank you that you're a loving God, even to the extent that Jesus was willing to take our place and die for us. Lord, please help us to fear you in a right sense. And now, before we face your judgment, just to turn to you. Thank you that you've given us a saviour. You've given us hope a we of being forgiven. If we'll just turn to you. Please help each of us, Lord. Whatever our background, whatever we've done in the past, just to come to you now. And receive your forgiveness. And put all our trust in you. And follow you day by day. For your name's sake. Amen. In a minute, we're going to be sharing communion. We'll sing in a moment, but as we share communion, as we we're just saying, think about Jesus on that cross. He took my place. He took my punishment. Uh, next hymn uh, echoes some of that. Uh, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And I'd read the first two or three verses. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim, like me and you. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. Guilty, vile and helpless we. That's not very flattering, is it? But it's true, isn't it? Guilty, vile and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Let's stand and sing Man of Sorrows.